Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. This is Muhammad Jalal and I'm your host on the Thinking Muslim podcast. For over three years, Britain's political establishment and much of the country has been in what can only be described as political meltdown. The 2016 referendum called by David Cameron resulted in the extraordinary outcome to leave the EU, despite all political predictions. Since then, Britain has been battling with the issue, triggering Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, negotiating a deal that was rejected on three separate occasions by Parliament, the resignation of Theresa May and now what seems like a flailing Boris Johnson administration. Is Britain on course to make the worst political decision since Suez in 1956? That may potentially tip it into a recession and in the words of the former Prime Minister John Major, reduce its influence around the world. To discuss this issue, I have invited Dr Imran Wahid to explore Britain's uneasy relationship with Europe, its current predicament, and to speculate about what comes next. As always, please subscribe to The Thinking Muslim on your favourite podcast app and follow me on at thinking underscore Muslim on Twitter for regular updates. Dr Imran Wahid, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakat. And welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Welcome, salam, uh, Jalal. How are things? Alhamdulillah, things are things are good, and uh, we're speaking really uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, and uh, of course, events are, are are moving at a very fast pace at the moment in 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 Britain. Um, you know, it it seems to me that um, uh, by the time this podcast goes out, um, you know, there may be some additional developments. Um, yes, uh, I guess the uh, editor of the Sunday Times will be, you know, really pleased with their scoop of uh, 
Amber Rudd's resignation, but uh, the other editors probably didn't catch it in time for the Sunday editions or maybe it'll make the late edition. So yeah, as things are going on uh, with the whole Brexit issue, there are hourly, daily developments. So for many people, it's it's quite hard to keep track of the developments. So before we dive into uh, a discussion about uh, Brexit uh, and uh, and what's going on, it's probably worth asking you uh, why we uh, should discuss the topic in, in the first place. Um, I mean, it seems to me that many Muslims would probably suggest, well, you know, Brexit doesn't seem automatically to be a, a Muslim issue or, or something that uh, Muslims need to uh, care too much about. I think, you know, to go to the initial uh, subject of why is this important is is really vital because it's important in any discussion to set the parameters of the discussion and to understand the relevance of the discussion. So uh, I think the way to view this, the issue of why discuss Brexit or, you know, why discuss the sanctions regime on Iran or, you know, why to discuss uh, any of the, the major political issues, for example, the, the issue at the moment uh, in relation to Kashmir, um, all of these issues really need to be considered uh, from the perspective of what is the characteristic of the Muslim. So the characteristic of the Muslim, which anyone who uh, reads the Qur'an will see, is that there is a repetitive theme that the characteristic of uh, the Muslim is somebody who is uh, reflect, reflecting, thinking, someone who has awareness. So, you know, very much the, you know, the, 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 the title of the podcast, The Thinking Muslim, this is one of the fundamental attributes um, that characterizes the Muslim, that elevates the Muslim is his uh, or her thinking uh, and awareness. So at a very basic level, uh, the issue of thinking and awareness and reflection are very, very important. And uh, this was the message of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he first conveyed the deen to the people of Mecca is to elevate their thinking, their awareness, their understanding of uh, the reality. And all of that isn't just to reflect on, you know, the, the, the beauty of the mountains or the, uh, the, the, the miracles of creation. Uh, although, of course, those things are very important, but also much of what he inculcated in the early Muslims in terms of reflection and awareness was to reflect and have awareness about the realities affecting the political situation of the Muslims. Um, so the issue of awareness, I would say, is, is vital. Many of the listeners uh, may have heard the uh, famous hadith of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which was narrated in Bukhari and Muslim, in which uh, he mentioned that a believer is not bitten from the same hole twice. Uh, and this is a very famous narration. And the understanding of this hadith is that it is important to be aware uh, so that one doesn't repeat the same mistakes. So the characteristic of awareness uh, being linked to the believer uh, is very important here. And it's indicating that awareness is a, a very necessary characteristic for a Muslim because, of course, the Muslims are meant to be uh, leaders and witnesses over mankind. So this is how I would say we approach the issue. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I, I would like to echo what, what you said and, and probably add that, um, you know, today Muslims aren't 
the masters of events. Um, you know, in many ways, uh, Muslim countries respond to uh, the actions and activities of great powers. I mean, we can't think of a single Muslim great power in the world, even though on paper, at least, you know, um, the Muslim Ummah has vast numbers, uh, vast amounts of resources, uh, has vast reserves of wealth, um, uh, yet strategically Muslims can't um, place, put together uh, any agenda that allows them to um, uh, to make the politics, rather they respond to uh, the activities of America or Britain or other great powers in the world. And, and I suppose, you know, as you said, this political literacy is required in order for us to move beyond uh, being the subject of um, the, um, uh, the, these activities, but, but, but rather to, uh, uh, to, to command uh, the political events. I mean, in, in many senses, as you said, the, um, the Prophet وسلم, and the Sahaba, Ridwan Alayhi, you know, they, they were masters of events, right? And, and you know, they uh, built uh, the Muslim Ummah into another great power. And, and, and until it got to the, the phase beyond uh, the life of the Prophet and the Sahaba when uh, Islam uh, was, a, uh, was a, a superpower of its time or, or the Muslim Ummah was a superpower of its time and, and was able to then... Uh, apply the Quranic notions of justice upon upon the world. So let, let's begin. Let's dive into the discussion about Brexit. Um, now, many of my listeners uh, wouldn't really be following Brexit on a day-to-day level. Um, they may not live in, in Britain. Uh, so can you bring us up to speed uh, with uh, the drama that's now become known as, as Brexit? I, I guess the issue of Europe uh, is, I mean, Brexit is the latest uh, installment in the whole saga of Europe, which Britain has been uh, grappling with, uh, you know, for many decades, if not centuries. So it's it's the latest chapter of that. So Brexit ultimately is to do with Britain's relationship with the European Union. In terms of the main events, um, there was a referendum, of course, in uh, 2016. Uh, in which uh, the electorate in the UK were asked whether uh, the UK should remain a member of or leave the European Union. Um, and in that referendum, uh, 52% approximately of uh, voters were in favour of leaving the EU. That's almost 17.5 million votes. Um, and therefore, after that, uh, what was set in motion following that referendum is um, a, a set of actions to try and leave the European Union, um, outwardly at least, uh, in order to implement the will of the people. That's what uh, you know. The, the the leading politicians of uh, the United Kingdom would say. So, you have a referendum in 2016. Um, you then have uh, a change. Uh, in the Prime Minister from uh, David Cameron to Theresa May and listeners will know that uh, earlier this year Theresa May uh, was uh, forced into a position where she stood down as Prime Minister and then was replaced by the current Prime Minister Boris Johnson. 
And of course, there's been a lot that's been going on in terms of negotiation throughout this period, this three-year period since the referendum. There's been uh, very wide negotiations with the European Union in terms of how Britain can leave the EU, the terms on which it would leave the EU, similar to you know the end of any kind of relationship. So if two partners were to leave a company or you know, uh, a husband and wife were to divorce, um, they are you know, negotiations about the settlement, the divorce settlement, and that's really what Brexit, the process has been about. So that's what's playing out. And we've kind of things have really reached a situation now where you know, the, the British Prime Minister has said that he's, you know, he'd rather be dead in a ditch uh, than request a further extension. So there's been extension after extension to you know, Britain continuing to remain in the EU rather than leaving the EU. And then a lot had been made of, you know, this Halloween Brexit um, that uh, the, uh, the the leadership campaign of Boris Johnson made it very, very clear that uh, without a shadow of a doubt, they would leave uh, on the third year, do or die, they would leave on the 31st of October uh, this year, deal or no deal. Um, so that's the situation. And I mean, the most recent events in the last week is, you know, Parliament's back. Um, the the mother of all parliaments, as they uh, like to call it, is back. Um, although, you know, the mother is due to be suspended for a you know a good number of weeks. Um, so it, it seems like, you know, the, the the nation is not in need of its mother and will cope uh, for a few weeks without this uh, parliament. So there's been this whole issue about the the prorogation of parliament. So essentially. Uh, the Prime Minister and the, the Queen have in their gift the ability just to close down Parliament. Uh, so there's been a whole debate about what, what's behind that. And then there's been a series of votes this week. Um, the votes essentially are looking at whether um, the Prime Minister can be forced to delay Brexit. And, and those votes essentially have, have, have been passed. They've gone through the House of Commons. They've gone through the House of Lords this week. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess if we want to look at some of the issues, Jalal, it'd be interesting to get your view on Europe, of course, as I started off by saying, is not really a new issue in British politics, but it seems to be, you know, a really toxic issue. What, how, how do you see that? Why is it such a toxic issue? And, you know, why is it being a, a perennial issue for British politicians? Yeah, I think that's a very uh, interesting point, Imran. Um, I mean, to, to summarise and... Um, the, the British position has always been to uh, uh, to to somewhat see the European Union as a as a strategy or as a tactic rather than as a an, an end in itself. Um, Britain really joined the European Union in the nineteen seventies, uh, and it was uh, it was really when Britain came under immense uh, economic strain. Uh, it saw the the great superpowers of America and the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, uh, its position in the world had somewhat declined. And so uh, it, it was forced to join this European Union after, uh, you know, many centuries of, of uh, staying away from continental powers. I mean, just as a quick, a quick backdrop, um, Britain's policy during the uh, 17th, 18th and, and, and 19th century was to, uh, was to pursue what became known as blended isolation, you know, the idea that, uh, Britain would stay away from uh, continental powers, but but at the same time keep the continent weak, um, and and that policy really remained 
uh, in play until the Second World War, when this decline occurred to to, to Britain. So uh, the 1970s, Britain joined the EU, and it was in 74 that a referendum took place. Uh, at the time, it was a Labour government that pursued this referendum, and the referendum was was going to be uh, a referendum to remain or leave. Uh, uh, the European Union and it was extremely successful it was going to be successful because the political establishment's weight was behind this referendum uh, and that put to bed some of the um, uh, the anti-European tendencies that existed in, in Britain however those tendencies really resurfaced in in the 1980s or late 80s and 1990s where Euroscepticism uh, Euro was on the rise uh, in in Britain, and that was partly because the European Community, uh, as it was known, uh, had a project to uh, to to expand the scope and the breadth of the uh, European uh, of this project. Um, in 1992, uh, the Maastricht Treaty was signed, and and it was under John Major's government, um, and John Major. Uh, only managed to get that treaty passed Parliament through a series of opt-outs. So, so the, the Maastricht Treaty uh, established a political and economic union uh, 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 and, it, and it created the, the, the name the European Union. And it was under that treaty that the euro was designed. Now, Britain had an opt-out from the European currency. And so today we don't have the, uh, in Britain we don't have a, uh, the European currency but rather Britain retains the pound so so in essence you know Britain's relationship has always been quite une- uneasy because essentially it doesn't see the European Union as a as a uh, an end in itself but rather sees it as a as an opportunity to establish economic and political weight in the world uh, that's dominated by uh, by superpowers and, and today dominated by the sole superpower uh, the United States. Now, it's probably worth saying something about the U.S. position towards uh, towards this project. Uh, President Bill Clinton uh, saw uh, it made sense to promote the European Union and to expand the European Union. Remember, in the, in the 2000s, Europe expanded to 27 and later 28 nation states. Many of these states were uh, ex-Soviet Warsaw Pact countries like Bulgaria, Poland, uh, the uh, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and and these states had traditionally been under uh, the Soviet sphere of control. The Americans saw uh, it made a lot of sense to incorporate these countries because you consolidated them into this liberal democratic West, and so they promoted uh, the uh, the project of expansion because it it, it allowed. Uh, those countries to to move away from any uh, potential of being in a in a future Russian sphere of control. Uh, secondly, the Americans actually feared the rise of Russia. They they saw the potential of Russia's rise to be a threat uh, to its hegemony, and so uh, expanding the European Union to the borders of Russia at one stage, the EU was entertaining bringing Ukraine into and Georgia into uh, this club. Uh, so that made a lot of sense because it it, it built a potential for a, a permanent liberal democratic West on the borders of the of uh, of Russia.
So in the 1990s, Britain sees itself really as a bridge between uh, the European Union and America, and, and that fits really well with uh, with Britain's status in the world. You know, it 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 was able to uh, punch above its weight, uh, but at the same time, uh, it was able to keep a foot in Europe and and um, achieve the, the sort of structural power, I suppose, that comes with being a member of uh, the world's uh, biggest trading bloc. Imran, I'm interested to get your perspective on uh, the current Trump administration. Uh, there seems to be a departure uh, from previous administrations. Uh, Trump seems to uh, have a very uh, a very strong view that uh, Brexit is a good idea. Um, I mean, w what's your take on, on Donald Trump's current strategy? There's mixed signals, I would say, because Trump has spoken a lot about uh, the fact that they're going to do a, a great trade deal uh, with Britain and, you know, Britain has a great future outside of Europe. But then, you know, other people in the uh, American administration have made it very clear that, you know, Britain is not very high up on their priorities for doing a trade deal um, and they don't view it with uh, a great deal of importance. Um, but I agree with you that that was the, uh, at least up until recently, and I, it doesn't seem to have changed radically, the idea that, you know, a strong Europe which expands into Eastern Europe uh, is a way of having influence over the former countries of the Warsaw Pact and keep, keeping them out of the Russian sphere of influence. That does seem to still be the American uh, approach, even under the Trump administration. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's really interesting what, what you say there. And um, I mean, you're right in saying that there seems to be a split in the American what American establishment as to uh, how to approach Brexit. I mean, Trump and, and those around him, uh, Mike Pompeo and, and Mike Pence, who was, of course, uh, in the UK just this last week, they seem to be very much in favour of Brexit. I mean, remember Trump uh, was... Um, uh, was a cheerleader of Brexit even before his his election, and uh, after uh, becoming American president, President America, he uh, called for Nigel Farage, you know, the um, uh, the leader of the then UKIP party, who's now the leader of the Brexit party. He called upon Britain to appoint Farage as uh, the ambassador to the US, in a sense to um, uh, to bolster uh, Farage's position uh, in Britain. So it seems to me that the Republicans, or at least the Republican leadership, are very much in favour of Brexit. Because I suppose they see uh, Brexit as an opportunity to divide Europe. Um, now, I suspect, as you said, the, um, uh, the Democrats don't buy that. Uh, the Democrats still feel that uh, the European Union is far more resilient. And even with Britain leaving, or if Britain leaves, uh, in a sense, the European Union can... Uh, can find a strength in in that in that weakness. Um, you know, yes, uh, one of its largest economies uh, would peel off, but but at, but at the same time, you know, I suppose the Democrats argue, and that, that came through with uh, a number of Democratic senators who, in a sense, uh, suggested you know a couple of weeks back that um, uh, uh, any trade deal would have to go through the House and. Uh, they wouldn't accept any trade deal which uh, uh, compromised the position of of Ireland, uh, or compromised the position of Northern Ireland and its and its border. 
And I think that that's that battle has been fought between the Democrats and Republicans. But but you know, it seems to me that Donald Trump is is fairly you know he's against uh, the whole notion of the European Union, and he hopes uh, that the European Union could crumble or could collapse uh, as a result of Brexit, but also as a result of uh, the rise of populism. You know, it's it's no secret that uh, the Trump administration has been. Uh, has been supporting, uh, you know, Viktor Orban, Polish nationalists, and the Austrian uh, Freedom Party, um, and and many of these uh, populist groupings have 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 received funding from uh, the American right as well as political support, I suppose, from the Trump administration. Yeah, I, th- I think the interesting thing is that on the surface of it, uh, it would seem that Brexit ought to be about trade. So a decision to leave the EU, it's about trading relationship and fundamentally it ought to be about trade. But the the reason that Brexit has become such an issue is that it's not simply a decision uh, to leave the EU really. Um, It it has become uh, immersed in culture, identity, uh, values, and, and that's what's made it such a bitter issue and such a divisive issue as well, that um, you, you have probably a, a population in Britain uh, which is more Eurosceptic uh, than uh, its politicians, than, than what you see in Parliament. Um, so the Euroscepticism and the desire uh, to leave the EU seems more stronger in, in certain parts of the country than it is in Parliament. Um, and I think, yes, it has been a proxy for things like identity, for issues like immigration, and, and probably immigration is the only real issue um, other than trade, which uh, one could argue is uh, one of the issues that would be uh, fundamentally changed through leaving the European Union. Um, so, yes, the rise of uh, you know right-wing populism, I think, has been another important angle uh, to view Brexit from. Well, yes, for sure. I think that's a really, really pertinent point, Imran. And um, uh, it's a, a populism that has um, taken hold of large parts of, of Britain, but in, in particular England. I, you know, we uh, we see that there are communities in England uh, that um, are deeply sceptical of the European Union and, and would like to see a reversal of the, the migration policies that come with uh, tying Britain into this uh, single market regime of, of freedom of movement. I mean, Imran, you're a psychiatrist. I mean, what's your what's your take on the um, the mind of the English nationalists? You know, what's going on there in 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 terms of its 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 current thinking? I I think it's an interesting point. Um, I was uh, reading um, an interesting. Uh, transcript of a lecture given by uh, Professor Vernon uh, Bogdanor, who's one of the kind of most famous constitutional experts uh, in Britain. And and this was a lecture he gave in uh, 2013 called Britain and the Continent. Um, And it's, you know, it's it's quite an interesting lecture. And what he talks about in there is, he said in, in one section of it is, he said, the fundamental question is this, is Britain part of Europe? Geographically, of course, the answer is yes, but what is the political answer? For much of British history, the answer is no. Uh, 
Uh, and then he talks about what you talked about in terms of the splendid isolation in which uh, Britain lived. Britain was an imperial power and the, the British Empire covered nearly a fifth of the world's surface and it was the largest land empire, uh, arguably, the world had ever seen. So, yes, I mean, go back a hundred or so years and, and most people in Britain would think that politically Britain is not part of Europe and has nothing, you know, before at least if you go back to 1900, if you go back to before World War One, most people will think, uh, you know, the people of Britain to have have nothing to do with the continent. And, and, and Professor Bogdanor said the people might have added the less we have to do with it, the better. So yes, there is this uh, legacy of uh, empire and imperial power. And it was felt that, you know, these people in the continent, you know, they don't speak much English, and they're, they're fairly odd. Um, and even though we're part of Europe, we're more closely connected with our empire in Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand, in South Africa, in the African colonies, and of course, the United States. So the ties of Britain, uh, arguably, were more to the, 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 the countries of empire and its imperial power uh, than uh, to continental Europe. And I think that in itself is part of uh, the history uh, of the relationship with the European Union. Yeah, so Jalal, may, maybe if we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of some of this stuff so we can really get an understanding of it. What, what was David Cameron doing in calling this referendum? What was the kind of imperative? I think to understand David Cameron's motivations, one needs to look at the political context in 2015. Now, um, remember, from 2010 to 15, David Cameron presided over a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats, um, one of the reasons why he got out of uh, holding a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, which was signed by the Brown government in 2008, was that uh, the Liberal Democrats would not permit him uh, to hold such a referendum. And so he used the, the, uh, the guise of a, of a coalition to, uh, to prevent, in, in a sense, uh, the commitment or some of the commitments he made uh, in his 2010 manifesto and he wanted to recreate that and this was confirmed actually by Donald Tusk uh, president of the European Council who said in an interview with the BBC uh, later on that he had asked David Cameron look why have you gone for this referendum it, it comes across as being a bit of a disastrous move and and Cameron had reassured him that he never intended to follow through on a referendum because uh, there would be another coalition in 2015 Actually, Cameron's downfall came from his success. Uh, in 2015, he never expected to win a majority. Uh, and when he won that majority, he now had to follow through on the manifesto promise and, and uh, call a, uh, a, a referendum. It, it, it wasn't as if ideologically Cameron uh, was for Brexit, but you know he ended up in a situation where uh, he was in power, uh, had a government, and there were still, and as there is still today, a significant number uh, of the Conservative Party who want to leave Europe. Um, and I would argue that that uh, number of people, or at least that uh, tendency within the Conservative Party, have become more dominant, uh, more empowered as a result of uh, the referendum and the result. Uh, and I suspect, uh, you know, that the, the, the result of the referendum uh, took many people, including David Cameron and, and many others in the political establishment, uh, by surprise. 
Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Now, as you said at the beginning of the show, Imran, um, Theresa May came to office uh, and uh, then she bizarrely called a snap election in 2017. Uh, wh why do you think she called that election? Because, of course, um, the majority, the slim majority the Conservatives had, uh, had uh, been forfeited by the end of that election. And um, uh, we now had a, a, a Theresa May uh, minority government uh, uh, propped up by these Irish unionists. Arguably, it's, it, you know, this is politics. You, you feel that um, you can get a larger majority in order to, you know, perhaps strengthen your hand uh, when you've got, uh, because the, the majority that uh, they, they had in the, uh, in, in the previous election was, you know, a fairly small uh, majority. So I, I guess part of it is you want to have a larger majority in order to strengthen your hand, potentially. Uh, when you've got Brexit negotiations uh, coming up. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's anything more than a political miscalculation. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with, with you there. Um, I think it was a miscalculation. And um, uh, remember, I think let's take a step back and, and try to understand uh, the nature of politics. Now, often it's a case that we get carried away with uh, media headlines and with a speech here or a speech there and and uh, uh, it's often the case that we we end up swayed by uh, a statement made by a politician here or there. Uh, actually, politicians or most politicians in 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 ideological societies, uh, they have a systematic plan by which they they uh, work or with which they work. And Theresa May was no different. I mean, Theresa May. Uh, called a general election in 2017 because she saw it as an opportunity to, uh, uh, to, to in a sense, create a buffer on her backbenches against uh, the hard Brexiteers. Let, let me explain that. Uh, Theresa May, of course, inherited a very slim majority uh, from David Cameron. And, and in 2017, she decided that calling a general election would allow her to uh, to 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 establish a, a a larger majority, some commentators suggested it would be in the region of eighty to hundred new seats for the Conservative Party. In order to do that, she needed to go to the electorate on a fairly hard Brexit agenda, and that's what she did in her twenty seventeen manifesto. She tried to win over a lot of the Labour heartlands that had voted uh, for uh, for Brexit. Um, and, um, and and that was a strategy. In fact, I was confirmed in the Observer newspaper because a day after, a day before she called the general election, she had actually had dinner uh, with the then uh, uh, president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker. And Juncker had suggested to her that calling a election would be a very positive thing because it would be able, it would allow her when the crunch points occurred in the negotiations, it would allow her to uh, to, to, in a sense, buffer herself from criticism from within the party. Um, see, Theresa May was not a hard Brexiteer. She came across as a, as speaking tough on Brexit, and she, of course, appointed a number of Brexiteers like Michael Gove and Dr. Liam Fox and Boris Johnson, of course, to her cabinet. Uh, however, uh, her negotiating tactic was was effectively to drown out the Brexiteers uh, within her cabinet uh, and to negotiate a very uh, a very weak Brexit. I mean, if you look at the uh, 
uh, agreement she came back with and and that agreement you know w- was was not really what uh, was went against the direction of travel that she seemed to imply for for many for many months but that agreement uh, in effect would have kept britain in a uh, a customs union uh, for a uh, for a very long time uh, until uh, a, a solution would be found to the Irish uh, border problem. Um, so, so in a set, so, so I think the way to see Theresa May is, is sometimes you know we can evaluate political uh, tactics uh, and forget the plan. And uh, what we need to do as as people who want to analyze politics is we need to take a step back and try to understand what the plan is. And in this case, Theresa May's plan was really to put barriers in in the way of a hard Brexit, and to uh, and at the same time keep as many Brexiteers on board as was possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can uh, you can draw a parallel actually between her and uh, Boris Johnson in in some ways, uh, in the sense that uh, he isn't somebody either who really is a hard Brexiteer. Um, there is always that uh, discussion about, you know, how this politician wrote two separate articles, one for Remain and one for Brexit prior to the uh, the, the referendum campaign. So I, I'm not necessarily saying that he's not somebody who believes in Brexit, um, but, you know, his track record, um, even though there's all this stuff about dying in a ditch and do or die, um, I, I think the point you're making about it, it's important to look just beyond, you know, the headlines, the slogans, the speeches, and look at um, the overall trajectory, the overall strategy, the overall plan. Um, because although May was giving, Theresa May was giving these speeches, uh, talking about, you know, it's better to leave with, you know, no deal rather than a bad deal. Um, there's no real evidence that you know that the the, the the country was making any uh, sincere, detailed, uh, comprehensive efforts at preparing for no deal, and that remains the situation even now. You know, so even you know today, you know Sunday the eighth of September, the, the suggestion is that you know they, they the country could crash out without a deal on the thirty first of October. You would expect that there would be a great deal of detailed planning. There, there was that whole. Uh, you know, um, scenario with that, you know, the, the companies they had given contracts to um, in terms of shipping and freight. And, you know, one of them um, didn't even, you know, really exist and had never even, you know, won any contracts. And its terms and conditions uh, on its website were the kind of delivery terms and conditions of a pizza or kebab shop. Um, yeah, they so, didn't have any ferries either. Yeah, it didn't have any ferries. And, you know, it, it had a website of a, you know, of a kind of takeaway restaurant, um, you know, terms and conditions. And and yet they were given, you know, in the event of no deal, you guys are going to be, you know, really helping us out. And you've won a multi-million pound contract. So you didn't get the, you, you didn't get the idea that actually they are preparing to leave without a deal. And in, in fact, as things went on, there was a, you know, an incremental uh, move towards uh, a slower Brexit. It's almost like, look, if we have to leave, then it's uh, sorry, a, a softer Brexit. If we have to leave, then it's you know it's going to be a very very soft Brexit. And essentially, you know, Theresa May's deal um, was never going to be palatable to the 
you know, to the right wing Eurosceptic uh, branch of the of the Tory party, uh, because it, it, it basically uh, left, uh, you know, it, it took Britain out of the European Union in name. Uh, it, it meant that Britain lost many of the benefits of the European Union in terms of trade, uh, but it kept Britain hostage to, to, to much of the the, the the regulatory framework of the EU uh, almost uh, for eternity. So there was no way that that kind of a, uh, a soft Brexit was was ever going to get through Parliament. And that's what we've seen. So, you know, Parliament has made it very clear that it doesn't feel that Britain should crash out without a deal. But it's also become very, very clear um, that it doesn't agree on a deal either. Um, and that's the kind of ridiculous uh, situation that uh, that uh, British politics has now found itself in. But what that means is that it, it's almost the door on leaving the EU without a deal has been pretty much closed. Uh, it doesn't seem that the EU is going to offer Britain the type of deal it wants. Um, so, I mean, what are the options, Jalal? What, 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 what can possibly happen? Now that it seems like the door on no deal has been closed, there's all this ridiculous talk yesterday of you know Boris Johnson being, I think the the previous director of public prosecutions, Ken Macdonald, said that well the prime minister could end up in jail um, if he doesn't go to Brussels and seek an extension. But where is this going to end? Because you seek extension after extension. I mean, if the EU were going to offer a deal. The EU are never going to offer a good divorce deal because that would encourage other countries ultimately to leave the EU, and that that would that would spell the end of the EU as we know it. So it cannot possibly make it uh, very um, lucrative or, or very beneficial for countries to easily leave the EU. Um, so we've got this scenario where it, it seems as if uh, Britain cannot leave the EU, and I think that's intentional. Um... You know, I think Theresa May uh, didn't want to uh, uh, commit herself to a deal, no matter how much of a soft Brexit it was. Uh, I mean, that plan was revealed by Ollie Robbins, who uh, was her chief negotiator, a civil servant, who, in a drunken moment in a in a Brussels bar, uh, he uh, told told a, an undercover reporter that um, actually he was overheard by a an undercover reporter that um. Uh, Theresa May's uh, intention all along was to take uh, the negotiations to the wire and then negotiate a uh, an extension period to Article 50. Um, and so she, she intended to kick the can down the road. And, and it seems like that's a very similar thing to, uh, to as you said, what uh, is transpiring now. I mean, Boris Johnson, with all his bluster, uh, doesn't really have a... a uh, a a a solution to the problem, and so uh, he has in effect engineered things to uh, to move in the direction for an extension, but he can't, like Theresa May, be blamed for that extension because he has uh, ostensibly, at least, tried his best uh, to uh, to to push through uh, a no deal through Parliament, but Parliament has has prevented him, and so what we have here is uh, we have here a. You know, a, a strategy to um, to delay Brexit until some form of solution can uh, be found. But it's a strategy, though, isn't it? Uh, ultimately, this is. Uh, 
I mean, although the media, you know, if you watch the the British media and political correspondents, it would look as if, you know, this is all, you know, kind of happening in a very sporadic, unplanned way, devoid of a strategy that, you know, that Boris Johnson is 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 doing X and he's being thwarted by others doing Y and, and that he's therefore got to find out, you know, a, a different trajectory. But clearly, uh, I mean, for all of his bluster and, you know, his... Uh, the, the, the kind of uh, charm that uh, people credit him with, uh, Boris Johnson uh, is a very, very uh, intelligent, uh, if not, uh, uh, one could argue, accomplished, but intelligent, at least, politician. So all of what's played out in Parliament this week, uh, all of the possibilities of people resigning, of you know Parliament blocking his plans, his prorogation, all of these things... Uh, my view is would have been thought about for would have been you know war gamed uh, for uh, even you know during his uh, campaign to become leader of the Tory party so his his team would have thought about all of these issues that there's no way we're going to get no we're going to get approval for no deal parliament will will effectively uh, be able uh, to block no deal and you can you can remember uh, during the campaign uh, he, along with Dominic Raab, uh, were, were, were two of the candidates who refused to rule out prorogation. Uh, but yeah, it, it's as, as if they put that out there on purpose to make it seem as that look, we are even willing. So it's like Parliament against the people with Boris Johnson, and uh, as you know, this this great political leader who wants to carry out the will of the people, but Parliament is thwarting him, and and all of that, from my, uh, you know, from my perspective, is strategy. Now, uh, the media suggests that the uh, prorogation of Parliament was um, introduced for five weeks in order to prevent uh, Parliament standing in the way uh, of a no deal. Um, but uh, but actually, it's had the opposite effect. Um, uh, in record time, in, in a space of four days, Parliament has passed a bill uh, to overturn uh, the, uh, the potential of a no deal Cliff Edge Brexit on the 31st of October and, and has forced uh, Boris Johnson to negotiate uh, an extension. So the prorogation has, uh, hasn't actually worked to, to strengthen uh, supposedly uh, Boris Johnson's government, but actually has, uh, has helped to galvanise the opposition against him. Now, was that a miscalculation? But but how could that have been a miscalculation? I mean, the obvious it was obvious that um, uh, that would happen. I mean, even even if he had miscalculated Jalal, even this week they had the option of kicking this into the long grass. You know, they could have, you know, they 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 have probably a degree of control in the House of Lords, and they could have just continued discussing this, you know, amendment after amendment, and and really really stretched it out. But they were they immediately uh, the, the 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 leader of the House of Lords. Uh, immediately indicated at a fairly early stage in the week that uh, we're going to allow this to, uh, to to be passed and we're going to allow this to go to royal assent. Okay, so it's pretty clear that he doesn't want uh, a no-deal Brexit. So what is he looking for? Uh, is all of this for a uh, a possible general election, Imran? Yeah, uh, the issue of uh, the election is an interesting one. I mean, f- fundamentally... Uh, there's very little way forward for politics in Britain without an election. Um, I mean, Brexit aside, you know, no one at the moment is able to command a majority. 
and, and the way British politics works, it, it doesn't really have a, a strong tradition of minority governments or coalition governments. Um, so there is actually, from a kind of constitutional and political perspective, there is an imperative, irrespective of whether Boris Johnson needs to call an election at this point, they, they, they have to do so because uh, they really can't uh, proceed uh, with legislation with the current parliamentary arithmetic. So that the need to have an election really is paramount, even Brexit aside, uh, that's what I would argue, uh, because the, the government uh, is not in a strong position um, at this point in time. But I mean, the other point I guess is where is Corbyn in all of this? And I think uh, the the issue is the, 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 the opposition does not have a, a robust or credible leadership. Corbyn doesn't. Uh, represent uh, a robust and, and credible leadership. And of course, on the issue of Europe, Corbyn is somebody uh, who is, you know, much more Eurosceptic than uh, Boris Johnson, historically. He's from the, the, the very small Eurosceptic wing in the Labour Party, which is, you know, much more, uh, much less influential than the uh, Eurosceptics we've seen in the Conservative Party. And the Labour Party has not been di divided over Europe uh, anywhere near as much as the Conservative Party, at least in uh, since the Tony Blair years. Yeah, I mean, Cor Corbyn is a Benite. He, he voted against the Maastricht Treaty, the Lisbon Treaty, uh, any any moves to uh, to strengthen Britain's relationship with the EU has always been a, a problem for what they call the Lexiteers, the left-wing Brexiteers within uh, the Labour Party. I, I, I guess the problem is, does the Labour Party have credible leadership going into an election? Um, and I, I think what Boris Johnson's strategy is here is that, you know, ultimately, you, he would fancy himself if Brexit were not in the equation and, he, you know, he didn't have this threat of the Brexit party uh, going on about how the fact that, you know, Brexit had not been delivered. So if it was just head to head with Brexit not in the equation, I think Boris Johnson would have to fancy himself, uh, you know, and the opinion polls would probably suggest that as well in an election against Jeremy Corbyn. So the, the Labour Party seems to be a, a party which is bereft of any uh, strong leadership at this point in time. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I have to I have to agree with you. And um, remember, in, in the polls, the Labour Party, you know, in most polls are still polling under 25 percent. Um, that's a far cry from any place you need, you need to be to win an outright majority. Uh, at one poll I saw recently, Labour was polling at 22% and the Liberal Democrats at 21%. Remember, there was a poll yesterday and uh, despite you know the, the agony of this last week, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party still remains pretty static in the polls, you know, in the early 30s. So, you know, maybe the political classes has, has seen this as a setback for Boris Johnson. Um, I think it's playing out well in the general public who don't really follow, you know, the, the minutiae. They don't follow the, the you know, the, uh, the Westminster gossip. Uh, but rather they see, you know, a prime minister that's trying his best to pursue a, a Brexit that uh, at every turn, you know, these metropolitan Remainers uh, are trying to uh, seize an opportunity to stop him. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, this all this uh, rhetoric about, you know, do or die, and, you know, I may follow the law, and, you know, uh, I'd rather end up in a ditch. I mean, this is all with an eye uh, to an election in the near future, because they're, they're going to end up having to have an election in the next few months. Well, I think there's another option, Imran. Now, the fixed-term parliament at 2011 uh, suggests that if a uh, vote of confidence uh, is successful and, and parliament uh, in effect votes to uh, to uh, to call a general election, uh, then the government has 14 days to either win back the confidence of parliament or for the opposition to propose an alternative government. And if that opposition can uh, can command the respect of uh, of Parliament, uh, then it can continue until the uh, term expires for that particular government or that particular term. So in this case, until twenty twenty two. Now, uh, is it beyond the realm of of uh, of possibilities that uh, what emerges is not an an opposition bid for power, but actually a a unity government of some sort? Uh, let me give you my rationale. So you've got 21 members that have been kicked out of the Conservative Party, uh, but they but they remain as MPs. You've got a 22nd Amber Rudd that's left the Conservative Party. It seems to me that the scene has been set in many ways for a unity government. And, and that, in a sense, will shield uh, the two main parties from... Uh, the big deed that will be done, and, and that deed will be a referendum, uh, another referendum, uh, uh, which would probably be, uh, uh, you know, will be will be will be set for for a few months' time, and so that that coalition uh, unity government really has a temporary uh, a, a temporary uh, mandate, and that mandate is effectively to to see through a uh, a, a Brexit decision. Um, I mean, what do you think of the likelihood of that? I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe just to add that um, you know there are very strong relationships now between people like Philip Hammond, who used to be the Chancellor, and Keir Starmer, the current shadow Brexit spokesman. Um, and um, uh, uh, some have speculated that possibly you could have someone like Ken Clark, the father of the House, who could potentially be the um, uh, the uh, the the head of that government, uh, the Prime Minister? I, I think it's something that's possible. I, I think at this stage it's uh, difficult to, uh, you know, predict that that, you know, with a great degree of certainty that that's something that's going to happen. One could say that, um, you know, the, the current events suggest that that's a possibility. Um, because, look, ultimately to fix this issue because this issue i i would argue is uh, paralyzing uh, british politics um in the sense that they are not able to ordinarily you know this kind of a you, you wouldn't want to have to focus on the you know all of your uh, resources in terms of your civil service your your political leadership on the sole issue of brexit because it ultimately it takes you away from the other day-to-day -day issues of government and politics. Um, so the issue has to be resolved. And that that very much we've heard, you know, if you've listened to Boris Johnson speaking this week, that is very much what he's been saying, that, you know, we have to deal with this issue um, before we can deal with other issues. So the only route to dealing with it 
you know, to, 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 you know, you can have delay after delay, but that doesn't actually deal with it. And it leaves you in the same situation politically. This kind of, um, you're in this political status quo, which, you know, is costing them economically and politically. Um, so they have to get out of that. So going back for repeated delays, unless you, you kick it into the long grass and have a delay for many years, but even that will lead to uncertainty. All of that has to really be avoided. Uh, from their perspective. And the only way to, to do that really is either to have what you're talking about, almost like a national unity government, which fixes the issue and kind of cancels Brexit and then holds a general election sometime after that. Um, the cancelling of Brexit, I think, can only occur through, you know, th they would have to have uh, another referendum. And it was interesting. I think I was listening to, um, it was... Um, I can't remember her name, but it was it was one of the the twenty one Tories who have been kicked out. She was on, uh, I think, any questions on Radio Four on Friday night, and she was saying that she's come out come round to the idea now of having a second referendum. Um, and it, it seems that there are some of those people in the Conservative Party who had not advocated for a second referendum, who are now talking openly about having a second referendum on the. And then I guess the question in the second referendum would be. The question has now been distilled down to not leave or not leave. Uh, it's not going to be leave or no leave. It's going to be, look, we can't get a deal. So do we leave the European Union without a deal or do we stay in the European Union? I think that will have to be the question. Um, and I suspect um, that if you have a referendum on those terms, you're probably going to be able to uh, Britain will be able to remain in the EU and get rid of the whole issue of Brexit, although the issue of Europe will not be by any means closed. Um, and I guess the other issue it raises is this is going to have had a significant polarizing impact on uh, the, the British people. Um, you know, there, there are some people who say that Britain is now not a country of right and left wing politics. It's a country of remain and leave. Um, and there are going to be many people who will, I guess, feel disenfranchised. Many of those people who Googled what the European Union is the day after voting to leave are going to feel as if, you know, the, the, the illusion of power they were led to believe that they had through the ballot box um, has that, you know, that they have been betrayed. And I think that is going to have knock on effects. Well, that, I, I, I agree with you. And I think maybe that's a good place to end it. Um, that sense of betrayal that's felt by not actually only British voters, but, but uh, uh, voters across liberal democracies around the world is, is, uh, is now palpable, right? You know, you, you think about the Trump presidency and, and how he came to office uh, on the back of uh, those uh, disenfranchised Midwest uh, voters as de-industrialized places where um, uh, globalization just hasn't uh, reached uh, and across across I suppose the Western world now you know you have uh, a you know an economic disparity uh, that's uh, leading to great disenchantment um, and at the same time you know you've got the rise of these pop these nationalist powers like China uh, who promise uh, continuous economic growth without the um, uh, the sort of the, the inadequacies of uh, of uh, uh, liberal elections and, and democracy, which uh, which they they now present as a uh, as a disabling uh, as an impediment to progress within society, and so 
you know, these are really interesting times. And I, and I suppose, you know, um, uh, Imran, you know, we we come very much from a uh, from a Muslim, from an Islamic perspective. And, you know, we see that, you know, the world really requires a a new way of thinking. And, and you know, I, I hope and pray that, um, you know, Islam can um, give a, uh, a perspective, I suppose, on, on the world, uh, which moves beyond, you know, the, um, the inadequacies of liberal democracy and at the same time moves beyond the narrowness of, of these nationalist states like Russia and, and China. Yes, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely, Jalal, that uh, what we're seeing, you know, the, the rise of populism and uh, in Western countries and, and the um, what will happen in terms of the uh, polarization uh, that has occurred in, in Britain and is occurring across uh, the world is that we're seeing that increasingly um, the, uh, the allure of Western democracy uh, is fading in some parts. So there, there was this idea that, you know, democracy is a, is a train that is just traveling uh, along and reaching its, you know, towards its destination and many many people are getting on this train and it's you know it's 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 unstoppable but actually there has been a a great drawback um uh, there has been this uh rise of populism and uh, authoritarian uh, right-wing uh government and uh, political parties um and and that has been a strategy adopted by many um in the western political system and what we are seeing is that the, the, the political system seems to be failing uh, to unify people and, in fact, is, is leading to increased division and polarization um, within uh, these societies. And, and that ultimately, you know, for the thinking Muslim, uh, has to represent uh, an opportunity, um, a, a, an opportunity to, uh, uh, to think about how is it that we can. Uh, portray Islam and the, the attributes of Islam that actually uh, get away from that kind of uh, identity politics of, you know, nationalism, of, of tribalism, the, the populist uh, slogans. What is it in Islam that elevated people, uh, you know, away from this type of, uh, this type of politics? Jazakallah khair, brother, Dr. Imran Wahid, and Mela Subhanallah reward you for giving up your time today. And uh, it's really been uh, really informative. Jazakallah khair. Barakallah feek, Jalal. Really good to join you uh, today and inshallah hope to have uh, further discussions like this. Inshallah, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.